Hello, you're listening to an e-assessment association podcast. Hello, Tim Burnett here from the e-assessment association. On this week's podcast, we're chatting to Peter Westcott, an educational consultant uh, from Australia who came on a bit of a professional study tour of Europe and stopped by to, to have a chat. Now, in this podcast, we talk about the places that he went. He went to Belgium, Denmark, London, and all the things that he experienced and saw as some of the fantastic educational technology activities that are going on. Pastoral care is a real passion of uh, Peter's, and this was the actual thing that he presented on a conference in Seville, which was the start of his, his tour. As well as talking about what is happening in Europe and what Peter had discovered, we also had an opportunity to have a chat about all the things that are going on in Australia as well. We talked about machine learning, micro-credentials, remote proctoring, and also bring your own device. So this podcast covers a whole breadth of uh, activities, so I'm sure you're going to be delighted. So let's go and have a chat with Peter Westcott. So hi, Tim Burnett here. I'm joined today by uh, Peter Westcott, uh, who's joined us all the way from Melbourne in Australia uh, on a, a little bit of a, an international journey going around the world. Um, Peter, do you want to just introduce yourself and tell us a bit about yourself? Hi, Tim, and thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be in Bingley this the, morning. The wonderful library of Bingley. It's very pleasant. That's right. It's the typical Yorkshire sunshine <laughs> outside. Yes, glorious. So yes, I've been doing, a, what would you call it, a professional study tour of some of the leading higher education institutions in Europe to see what the landscape is, because I think that there is some particularly good stuff coming out of Europe that we tend not to see down in Australia. Um, the focus there has tended to be in the past uh, investments in large platforms like Salesforce or Canvas, for example. Whereas in Europe, there tends to be a lot more focus on what's immediately um, applicable to the student experience and how can you deal with the transformation in, in teaching practices and learning practices. And there are some exemplars that we can talk about. Uh, UCL in London, um, Utrecht in the Netherlands, Aarhus in Denmark are doing some really, really strong stuff. Mm. Uh, my background is not education. I came to education from a corporate commercial background, which gives me, uh, I think, a different and sometimes refreshing insight mm. into learner and uh, education journeys. And, um, and especially the marketing experience has given me uh, a lot of strong insights into how people behave and how they consume. Mm. There is quite a lot of resistance to the idea that learners are also consumers. Mm. But if you strip away the context of what I'd like to call, uh, in air quotes, the industry, mm. then the behaviour is very analogous to how consumers behave when they're, when they're buying a subscription, for example. Mm. Uh, if you actually look at the behaviour, a higher education degree is analogous to a subscription. Mm. You're, you're buying individual chunks of a larger journey mm. towards, a, towards a, an outcome. Um, so <coughs> on, this, on this journey, so where was the first kind of, you've, you, know, you left Melbourne and you've yeah. come over to Europe, where was your first kind of port of call? Uh, first port of call was the ICERI conference in Seville. Mm. I'd been invited to present a paper there on a facial recognition tool that I'd built to analyse student engagement in the classroom. Mm. And it was uh, really highly energising to be there, not only to share the tool, but to pick up some of the best practices that are coming out of uh, education in Europe. And there are some terrific things coming out of the Free University of Catalonia have got a traffic light system that students can use to monitor their own progress, yeah. which is reversing ownership of the data which I think is you know, a really strong step uh, in education. Uh, some very strong stuff in peer-to-peer -peer assessment coming out of uh, the business school in Denmark, mm. for example. Um, some very strong work coming out of uh, Mexico on using 
text recognition to extract key concepts from student submissions. And these were all presented at the... At these the were all presented. Yeah. And these are all aligned with my interest in using uh, biometrics and machine learning mm. to really improve not only the student journey and student outcomes, but also to help educators analyse and build their practice mm. so it improves the way that they're also teaching. Mm. Mm. Um, and if, you, if you were to put a capstone on it, I'd say that my main interest in use, is using technology to improve pastoral care. Right, okay. okay. Yeah. That's, that's the passion that drives That's you. That's my passion. Okay. Um, and the background to that is that, if I can boast, when I was at school, I was always one of the advanced students. Yeah. And that was never recognised or leveraged and so my schooling actually suffered as a result yeah, yeah. because I became disinterested and bored and started helping other students and teachers didn't like that yeah. and so I was labelled as a troublemaker. Right okay and that's I, I suppose that's quite common of people who fit at the higher or lower end there's always yeah they're either you know, they're disengaged for whatever reason that's right and that, and that causes disruption. Then, Absolutely it? right and um, you know students when I was doing work on the Classroom of the Future project at RMIT, the, one of the main things that students were expecting was for you to know what they needed before they knew what they needed. Mm. Mm. And I think that that is the key to providing an outstanding learning experience. Mm. So where else did you go then on your journey? Where else? I then visited the IESE Business School in Barcelona. They've been the top-ranked business school for the last five years. Mm. Um, I'm I was particularly interested to see the practical application of their Barco We Connect solution, the, the virtual classroom that they co-developed with Barco. Um, and also to talk to them about the opportunity of using machine learning to derive some, some really deep analytics out of mm. learner behaviour and practice. Mm. Okay. Uh, from there I visited Barco to learn more about their product roadmap. Where are Barco based? Is They're based in Kortrijk in Belgium. Right, okay. Uh, so uh, it was a bit of a shock coming from sunny Spain to... Yeah, I can imagine. It was quite cold in Belgium this time of year. And damp. <laughs> but uh, very welcoming people. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And very, very eager to learn from their customers and their potential um, audience about how they can improve their their product yeah so it's very much a customer driven approach rather than a developer driven approach which i think is really refreshing yeah. um, and i think they've got a lot of good opportunities to improve the learning analytics side of their product yeah. to really derive some strong insights so just briefly just to explain how the, the, their system works or just the, the just very briefly it it's a hybrid solution, which is a hybrid cloud and uh, in-room technology solution that effectively brings remote learners into a live classroom context. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've all seen webinars, which tend to, tend to be unidirectional, apart from the little chat function. Yeah. But the WeConnect solution provides a very strong personal connection. Uh, you can break people, you can break your cohort out into um, discussion groups or collabor collaboration groups, for example. Mm. You can move people around so that they're in your direct line of sight if you think they're losing their engagement. Mm. Uh, it's, a, it's very, very strong. And it can also be built into a hybrid situation where you've got a bank of screens for remote learners in conjunction with live learners in a classroom mm. so that your remote students get that live experience as mm. much as possible. Sounds like a really fascinating way of, of bringing the whole virtual classroom to, a, to life for it, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I, I think it's very strong and I think that it's probably the best solution for high immersion learning. Mm. Um, it may not suit, you, know, you might just want to do a Zoom for simple mm. stuff, mm. but the Barco solution is very good for a high immersion. And when you think that the European Union are now building a number of uh, virtual universities throughout Europe, then a solution of that type is going to be really, really essential. Yeah, yeah. Because um, when I was at Utrecht, we were talking about the, the Charm EU 
virtual university project that they're involved in. Right. <laughs> Which is, in a sense, it's a virtual university, it has no bricks and mortar, but it is still considered to be a university. Yeah. So students can effectively move around from campus to campus yeah. Yeah. without boundaries. Yeah. That sounds fascinating. So where else after that then? Well, I'm, to... I'm glad you asked. <laughs> it was Barco had invited me to the launch of the iMac Lecture Plus product which puts a layer of very highly advanced biometrics analysis across the barcode product mm. to provide student engagement feedback to educators. Mm. And the benefit of that is that educators can then adjust their learning and content and delivery to help maintain the highest possible level of engagement. Mm. Yeah. Now that's not to say that a class has to be 100% engaged 100% of the time. Mm. But it comes back to the what were you expecting to see. Uh, and so it provides a very strong agnostic baseline to help monitor that. Excellent. Uh, apologies for the, uh, the, the, the noise in the background. It, it's nice to actually hear some kids in the library enjoying, <laughs> enjoying the place, isn't it? it it's actually my, uh, it's my audience. They follow me around. <laughs> Your fan base. Yeah. Um, so where did you go after, after that then? I uh, popped into Free University uh, Amsterdam, where I've got a colleague who's interested in working on the same sorts of things as I am, and we had uh, a fantastic time. That was uh, Sylvester Dreyer mm. um, talking about the potential for uh, AI and machine learning in the classroom mm. to, help, to help improve teaching and learning outcomes. Uh, from there, I then went up to Aarhus and Every person in Denmark I asked pronounced Aarhus slightly differently. Right, okay. So please excuse yeah, yeah. <laughs> any cultural transgressions there. I'm sure they won't mind. Well, they have got a, uh, a product that I call uh, an elastodynamic feedback braid. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's, if you can imagine the shape of a braid, then they use, it's a feedback and sense-making reiterative loop that is used to not only if a student submits a piece of work they receive feedback from their uh, their tutors or their teachers and the next time they make a submission that feedback should be taken into account yeah. and the loop is a way of looking at that feedback and resubmission reiterative loop, too many re's in there, mm. to help guide and indicate the progression of a student through their learning. Right. And I was interested to talk to them about the potential to use machine learning to help teachers identify the extent to which those key concepts in the feedback had been incorporated into subsequent pieces of work. So would you say that was one of the, the kind of underlying passions is using the technology to assist the teacher in that process? Absolutely. The, the definitely not replace. Definitely not replace. Yeah. Um, AI can't replace the range of human cognition. Yeah. It can't appreciate context yeah. and it has no sense of humour. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's the, 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 all those kind of arguments about empathy, etc. You know, those the, the skills that people need to be to yeah. have. Although, although sometimes I think empathy can be Empathy can be dangerous, not dangerous. Empathy can mislead people's judgment. Right. Uh, and I think the technology, to an extent, can reduce the need for empathy um, in, in making assessments. It's a bit of a controversial subject, but uh, I think it's an interesting, interesting discussion. I like to think of AI as AIA, which is Artificial Intelligence Augmentation. Yeah, a lot of people, I think um, Matt, our chairman for the Assessment Association, likes to refer to it as Augmented Intelligence. Yeah. So it's definitely, and we've seen that in cars, people don't really want to trust the car to drive themselves, but all the information around them yeah. to make them make better judgments is, yeah. is the direction, I think. Yeah. So after Denmark, where, where did you go after Denmark? After Denmark, I popped over to an event held by University College London. Um, I've got a relationship there with Mutlu Kukurova and Rose Luckin. Mm. And they were launching the latest um, iteration of the Educate IT 
platform. Mm. Uh, I, th I think UCL are probably the world leaders in the holistic application of... Uh, I don't like using the term artificial intelligence mm. because it is artificial and it's not intelligent. Mm. Mm. So I like to use the word, the term machine learning. So I think they're the world leaders in the holistic, pragmatic application of machine learning in education. Right. Uh, that's good. Well, that's great to hear for yeah, for a local audience. I know uh, Rose is someone that we we've had on our radar for uh, being engaged in the conference. So, yeah. yeah. It's it's good to hear you know, other sources. That's it. I first saw Rose at a conference in Sydney, and I was immediately struck by the depth of her knowledge the the breadth of her passion and the the scope of her vision about how technology can be used yeah yeah because uh, typically we see technology used in used very well in pockets but they tend to be quite situational mm. um, for it to be successful technology needs to be scalable and more holistic mm. for it to be more widely used and accepted i think mm. Mm. Awesome. Well, hopefully, Rose, I know uh, we're in conversations, hopefully, about joining us at the e-assessment mm -hmm. uh, conference, question conference in uh, April next year, so it'd be good to hear more about mm -hmm. that. We'll, uh, for the listeners, we'll put some links on the, uh, yeah. the, the description so you can find out more information about that. Yeah. So where else in, then, in the UK have you been? Well, um, I've come to Bingley. <laughs> come to chat with me. Excellent. Well, thank you for coming to chat with me. I've really because it. I've been impressed with some of the, the work I've seen that you've put out. Yeah, as an association, we, we do try to uh, to share as as much really within mm. the community. So um, I know we first got started getting conversations about uh, malpractice and e-assessment mm. and, and uh, those kind of subjects. Um, so from the Australian side of things, what's what's happening? You know, what's the big news out in Australia at the moment? What's the, what's the kind of progress in terms of using technology to to enhance the assessment process? That's a very good question. Um, that has got a number of different answers on many, many different levels. That there tends to be a general view that e-assessment is the way of the future and that it has to be done. Mm. There is less of a general view in the way it should be applied and the best practices. And there is less consensus about the types of assessment that you need to have and what types of platforms are required over yeah. there. If we look at e-assessment in the terms of the, the VLE or the LMS, there are some very strong practitioners in moving assessment away from uh, a capstone summative assessment into the formative assessments during the course of the, of the learning journey. And some exemplars there, I think, are RMIT University, um, University of New South Wales and Deakin University in Melbourne, who tend to be using their LMSs uh, very strongly in a way that they are intended. Mm. So is that for more kind of formative based? It's more formative. Yeah. Um, I tend to look at assessments in in three different three different ways. We've got the summative assessment, which is assessment of learning. Yeah. I think there's no argument there. Yeah. There's formative assessment or assessment for learning, mm. and there's assessment as learning. Mm. And into that bucket is the peer-to-peer -peer feedback, for example. Mm. Because a peer will learn as much by giving feedback as they will by receiving it. Mm. And some people argue they will actually get more benefit from giving feedback mm. than receiving it. Mm. Um, and I also like the idea of moving the summative assessment to the start of a course or, or a, a subject. And, can, and flipping it over to be a formative assessment. Mm. You know, find out how much the student knows, then build their learning plan mm. from that platform, mm. rather than building up to it. Do you think the, the, the two are still connected though, so you can have that kind of diagnostic assessment and then use the, the data from that to yeah. see if, if those gaps have been filled? Yeah, I think you, you definitely need to use all three approaches to get the best possible picture in terms of learning analytics but also the best possible opportunity to plan 
and then assess at the end of the journey. Um, I think the, you know, the days of having the final summative exam are rapidly coming to a close. I mean, we've been doing it since Bologna first opened 900 years ago. Mm. Uh, but I think its days are coming to an end. I think there's, there will still be a place for it in some contexts. Mm. But I think generally the final capstone will not necessarily disappear, but it will change. Mm. Um, for example, in engineering, the final capstone might be a practical group project rather than being a written exam. Mm. You know, learning about Newton's law of collapsing buildings or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. So, is it what's particular? Is there something in Australia that really stands out in terms of someone who's making that, leading that charge of, of ditching the summative or ditching a sole summative examination and using multiple it's, models? It's still very difficult to completely ditch the end, and I don't think anyone has yet completely done it. Why, why do you think it's? Why, why do you think people are just not tearing uh, it up? I think because you've got pressures from uh, the government accreditation bodies mm. who are concerned about uh, academic standards. And I think you've also got some resistance from... I won't, I won't use resistance, but I think industry, for example, may not have recognised the benefit. Mm. Uh, there are some industry qualifications that still demand a final capstone. And I think also there is still the perception in the, in what I call the education marketplace, mm. that the exam is still the most effective way of assessing. You know, parents and students, I think, still think of an exam as being the ultimate assessment. That's, I, I suppose that's my, my kind of view as well. You, you mentioned earlier when we talked about Australia, one of the biggest markets is the, the international Correct. student base. And from my own observations, you, know, you look at countries like um, South Korea and mm. uh, other countries like that, where they put so much emphasis on the, the examination uh, Correct. And, the, and the scores that, that comes That's out right. of that. So it's, it's, it's part of that sell. And remember you, earlier you mentioned about branding of those yep. universities. It's part of that sell for that that yeah. needs to get across the fact that they will continue to have that experience that mm. you know, they're working towards a big, yeah. big, big day. That's, that's right. And it's driven also, I think, by the international market mm. where it's the, sometimes the easiest way to make comparisons is by exam results. Um, I think generally, if you use employability status post-graduation, that's not consistent enough. Mm. Student experience, surveys I think are probably not rigorous enough and so the exam result is still the bastion of comparison in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. So is there, um, in terms of using digital technology for the, the, the assessment side of things, is there anyone that's in particular standing out to you in Australia? Yep. Any particular solutions? Or? Yep, uh, University of New South Wales with uh, Matthew Hillier are doing some fantastic stuff with Moodle. Uh, Deakin University are doing really good things with their Brightspace solution and RMIT University are probably the leader in using Canvas in Australia mm. uh, in terms of that. So are, they, are these traditional universities in a sense or are they... University of New South Wales is traditional. Mm. Uh, Deakin and RMIT became universities relatively recently mm. from being uh, institutes of technology. Um, and when I mention those three, <clears throat> they're the leaders in the e-assessment LMS virtual learning environment. Mm. If we're looking at the more traditional university, uh, which is the group of eight in Australia, then I think Monash is probably the exemplar in using e-assessments there. Mm. The, and they've done a a very good job of blending the, the branding of, of their product and the need to maintain uh, the capstone assessments and blending that with the e-assessment, e-exam uh, idea. So how have they, uh, with these institutions then, have they gone down the route of saying this is a centralised commissioning 
process, or has it been a, a kind of led by a school or a college, or okay. yeah, how have they kind of organised it? Uh, it's varied. RMIT did the big bang approach with Canvas. Yeah, they said, you know, January first, uh, twenty nineteen, all learning online has to be done through Canvas. Blackboard mm. will be shut down. Mm. So that they had no choice. In other places, the transition has been slower. Um, and so students have been forced to go between two different learning platforms, mm. which I think isn't the best approach. In terms of uh, incremental, at Monash they worked with the schools who had the, the foresight to know that e-assessments were the way of the future. Mm. In particular, the, the law school at Monash was driven by the industry need for students to be able to deal with the virtual world because mm. they identified that law is probably the area where machine learning will affect the profession the most. Yeah, I think it will do. It? And so they were very highly motivated. And so they were the pioneers. They were the traitor in the castle, if you like. And from that, other schools and colleges have started to come along yeah. from the ride. So they've seen the benefits, they've seen the, the outcomes uh, and they've, they've joined in effectively. Yeah, that's right. And are these kind of homegrown, I know Cam obviously Canvas is a, is a big solution, uh, you know, global solution, but are there, is there still some work in the kind of homegrown platforms that have been developed? Uh, yes. I think what's happened is that the, the promise of the, the Big Bang LMSs like Canvases and Blackboards has been oversold yeah. because the they can't be the total solution. They don't have the sophistication in question types to be able to work properly. So in effect, they have to be part of a locally contextual solution. Mm. So for example, you might have uh, your Canvas LMS that has then got the serious exam management tool aligned mm. with it mm. to give you the sophistication you need. Mm. And so, it, it, it went from homegrown solutions everywhere to big bang solutions in some places and now it's coming back to a more hybrid mm. solution as, uh, as the gaps in some of those platforms are exposed. So the, the key elements that would be connectivity between those and integration and Correct. make sure the data and communication works. Yeah. I think, I think it, it's also still frustrating <coughs> in that um, in Australia the landscape tends to be a competitive between universities mm. compared with collaborative as I see for example in the Netherlands especially mm. um, universities tend to be far more collaborative and if you look at their surf organization it's a great example of universities collaborating to get economies of scale and benefit from centralized administrative functions mm. for example. Mm while still maintaining their differentiated positions in how they do their learning and teaching. Mm. So is, is there a JISC equivalent in Australia? Because I, I know here in the UK, JISC is there to, my understanding anyway, is to, to kind of guide those institutions in moving forward in using technology. And they, yeah. they put a lot of encouragement articles and research out there. But the universities are still very much a competitive element. Obviously, you mentioned yeah. the Netherlands, where it's a, there's a lot more collaboration, yeah. and that I personally, you know, everyone should be collaborating. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that's that's my view. Yeah. In Australia, is there a kind of equivalent organisations which are I've, can promote it? I've not seen it in higher ed. I've seen it in vocational education in New South Wales, where they've got a centralised body for not only administration but uh, high performance computing all the teaching and learning content is is monitored and maintained by that central unit so you've got consistency of application there mm. in the in the universities you tend to have sporadic forays into collaboration but they still tend to cling very very tightly to their to their own structures mm. um, there is a view that uh, Australia, in Australia that universities are businesses mm. and they need to be run like businesses mm. which I think is fair to an extent but I can't see the value in having student administration functions replicated in every single institution yeah. for yeah. example yeah. 
that just seems to me to be crazy, especially when you're coming into a time when learners are wanting to choose their own journey. Mm. So they might want to do some units from one university, some units from another one, to build up their own degree of their specific interest. Mm. Uh, so having, for example, centralised student administration would make that far, far simpler. Mm. Centralised, uh, no, well, we do have centralised results, that's government run, but I think there's still a lot of work to be done in the collaboration space. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of functions which are going to be the same, aren't they? You know, so why not collaborate a lot more on those? Yeah. They all use Workday, most of them are using Canvas now. Yeah. yeah. Why couldn't a group of universities get together and and just have the one instance of Canvas yeah. that they all have separate branches of. I, you know, it's not a problem that's solely based in Australia. Everywhere, no. everywhere else has got the similar kind of activities. Australia, obviously, you, you've got, it's a large, massive country yep. with a population that's, you know, there are certain centralization pockets, but there's going to be a lot where it's all spread out. How are you finding things like remote proctoring or online invigilation solutions? Are, are they coming into play much? They haven't been used much. Um, it's only in the last couple of years that universities, I think, have realised they need to start doing it. Mm. From what I've seen, though, most of the remote proctoring products are really, really clunky. They're hugely intrusive in terms of personal privacy. Mm. I think the security of the platforms and the way they're administered is highly problematic. They're still very much a first generation product that is now in a fourth generation environment. Mm, mm. Um, they, they usually still rely on having someone on a video screen somewhere watching what you're doing. Mm. Um, and you know, I've seen people who have tried to break the proctoring and they've succeeded in breaking the proctoring <laughs> really, really easily. Yeah. Um, well, I suppose one of the we, we did a, a session on it some time ago, and we were talking about the the reason the solutions come into place and, and some of the limitations of the solution. And a lot of it is, is again down to this idea that you're still using the same traditional examination mindset. So yeah, rather than you, you're trying to stop cheating, so why don't you change the the way in which it's delivered, problem solving, things that that you can't necessarily cheat. That's right, and uh, the classic example is you know, asking a student, what is the answer to 2 plus 2? Yeah. Easy to cheat. Yeah. But if you ask them, what makes up the number 4, then you're more likely to get a variety of answers, but you're also more likely to get insights into the way they're thinking and working. Yeah, yeah. And it's hard for someone to cheat yeah. at that, because there's no right or wrong answer necessarily. There isn't, and then, but then you've got the complexities of marking, so you can you kind of see why you know people. Yeah, until we can, mm. until there's more of a. You mentioned uh, Duolingo and, mm. and those kind of solutions, and there are a lot of these natural language processing mm. tools coming out there. It's when we put more trust in those as part of the summative process, and that's where yeah, yeah. things might change a little bit. That's it. Uh, uh, would you, are you surprised? We did some research recently. There's about twenty odd proctoring solutions yep. on the market. Um, I assume a lot of those are, are available in, in yeah, Australia. It's, are. it's a shocking amount, really. Um, and I know, you know, we, we, you know, within the community, we're seeing a lot of progress and a lot of opportunity. Mm. And there's a lot of demand and interest in the solutions. Mm. Um, you know, do you really think that? There's, there isn't. Do you think they can, in the short term, make make a difference, or do you think it's? it's okay. just... I think, um, especially with remote students and virtual campuses, there will still be a need for some form of remote invigilation, because there will still be times when that type of assessment is appropriate. And I suppose that comes down to what you said about having that mix of assessments. Having the mix. Yeah. Yeah. But I've seen some really good products, like Proctorio, for example. Mm that work inside an LMS or a VLE that, and they use machine learning mm. and biometrics mm. and they can be used across all different types of assessment from multiple choice to short answer to long answer to uh, and using you know, voice recognition, facial recognition, keystroke recognition, mm. all that sort of stuff. Uh, 
I don't think you'll ever get rid of cheating completely. No, no. You'll get rid of it a lot, and quite often it's the beware of the dog sign that stops people from cheating. Mm. Um, but then no one really knows the extent to which cheating takes place. Uh, no. I've heard four to six percent, which is about aligned with the amount of wastage that goes to shoplifting in, shop, in yeah, shops. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I think, it, from my observations, um, from the work I've been doing in America, um, the motivations you know, are, are very different in each region. Yeah. There, there's this attitude that cheating isn't about getting the advantage, it's about keeping up. Everyone's kind of doing it, therefore you've mm. got to keep up with the Joneses. I know certainly in the UK there's a kind of view that you know, it's a, a limited activity that still goes on. Um, and I know other areas, there are, yeah. you know, there are different motives, aren't there, really? For and different groups of students as well exhibit different behaviours. What about cost? Do you, do you think it is a cost-effective approach to...? I think re remote invigilation for high-stakes exams like the Proctor-Use and Examities uh, are very expensive. Yeah. You have to pay for each sit that you do. The online machine learning things, you pay a fee per student per year and it's unlimited use. Yeah. So when you think it might cost you Depending on your scale, I think it was about $50 US per sit yeah. per student for a, a remote invigilation package. About $25 US per student for unlimited use for yeah. a machine learning product. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also I did an interesting comparison at one institution where their paper exams cost them about $2.7 million a year. Yeah. That was for 80,000 sits. To go to a remote proctoring solution was going to cost them about $5.2 million yeah. a year. Yeah. So you have to think of where the economic benefit's going to come from. So bring your own device technology is something we've, we've you know, personally, uh, where I work, we've, we've had some quite interesting um, uh, developments in. How is it in Australia? You know, is, is there. Because it's always used as the, the, the device access is always used as one of the excuses for moving to, towards the assessment. Is it something that's growing in Australia? Is there a lot of backing for it? Uh, I think BYOD is generally accepted as the way forward in Australia. Mm. Because most of the campuses, or all of the campuses are BYOD for all the other work that is done. Mm. You've got a 60-40 split approximately of uh, Windows to Mac mm. users. Mm. You've got very strong considerations about equity and fairness of forcing students to use a different platform in an exam. Mm. Uh, because it, even if you give them instructions and the right keystrokes to use, mm. they still need to get used to it. Yeah, it is a, it's, it's an alien, it's, alien it's, device, isn't and it? And particularly if you're under pressure, yeah. it can be disadvantaged. Yeah. There's also the cost. Um, Monash, for example, started off with using the Chromebooks mm. because it, they could be consistently locked down in a, a kiosk mode. The cost of buying the books and the trolleys to keep them in mm. was very high. Mm. And they found that they had wastage. Some of the machines would just die yeah. while they were being stored. Yeah. So they chose to go with BYOD because they had the capability to do it anyway, yeah. because they didn't have to spend the money on computers, uh, and because of the student experience. Yeah. And I think that it's generally recognised that BYOD is the way of the future. And scale is a big part of that, because you might be doing four or 8,000 students per exam session mm. in a big venue. Mm. Uh, Utrecht use the Chromebooks, they might be doing up to a thousand per sit. Mm. So it's a completely different scale of economy you need to look at. There was an interesting photo that uh, I think it was Vega put out because they may be involved mm. in that particular thing where um, it was a whole series of desks. It, it was a traditional yep. room with the Chromebooks all yep. laid out. It was, it was quite an interesting photo. I always, I still see it, it, it's good, it's a step forward, mm. but I still see it as being a little bit of a shame still that you've still got this traditional you know, exam hall Kind of That's right. Approach to it, but. And I think that that comes down from the 
the old, oldy-fashioned-y way of having to lock down a computer. Yeah. You had to boot it in safe mode, you had to do all this, you had to do all the other things. But I think the, the way that the remote or proctoring platforms have evolved is that they're, you can now do lockdown browsers in just about yeah. any remote proctoring product. And some of the, like Chromebooks, I think there's now add-ons for Chrome and things like that, yeah. and even being built in, because I think Google are recognising that yeah, there is a need for these things. So they're starting to add those particular devices. I know we, for iPads, we use guided access as being yeah. a means of blocking But again, it comes down to the, the philosophy behind it. Why do you want a student to be locked down yeah. to their yeah. memory when in their job? Well, yeah, that's an interesting point. So if you, are you with the mindset that, so if I say, you know, uh, is it acceptable for a student to have access to the internet during an mm. exam? What's your what's your position on that? I think that it's, in terms of authentic assessment, I think it's essential. Mm. And I, I use the, I use the context of the sinking ship. Mm. If I'm on a ship and it's sinking, and I'm doing an accounting degree, do I need to know how to do a trial balance? Mm. Mm. Probably not. Mm. Do I need to know how to stop a ship from sinking? Mm. I probably do. Mm. If I'm a surgeon, I need to know how to deal with a burst mm. artery. Mm. Mm. So contextually, you, you need to give students access because when they go out to the workforce, they will have an entire company's worth of resource mm. in the backbone system. Yeah. Yeah. They will have the templates already there to use for their project briefs and business yeah. cases. Yeah. You, you, you're pulling on, it's how you're interpreting that information, how you're, you're, you're solving Correct. the problem, it's a problem solving approach. Yeah. It's the same when they talk about written essays, you know, in report, you don't, you don't write. You know, why are we expecting yeah. people to write in the examinations when you don't do that? Anyway, that's quite a simple fundamental part, mm. but you know, yeah, you just don't ask people to, no, to take that approach, do you? Rhetoric is, I think, only taught at Oxford now. Right. I don't think it's taught anywhere else. Right. And so the, the essay is an essential part of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, an essay might be essential part of liter literature review. But if you're doing a business degree, why not give a student a business case to build instead of an essay? Yeah, yeah. Because a business case is an argumentative essay. Yeah. But in a very practical format. Yeah, and it's a tool that they'll be doing. It's a tool. Yeah. It's authentic assessment. We, one of the areas, uh, the idea of micro-credentials, when we were chatting earlier, you were saying that, that there was some significant progress being mm. made in Australia. Do you want to just expand on that a little bit? Just tell us more about that. The exemplar that I use in Australia is RMIT University, where they have really where they've really understood and implemented the idea of micro-credentials as co-curricular credentialing. Mm. Um, micro-credentials appear on the student testimony uh, when they graduate. Mm. They're recognised by the official accreditation standards. They've got academic points against them. And they've, they've really put a lot of thought into making the micro-credential a valuable piece of capability evidence Mm. rather than a badge for turning up. Mm. Mm. And so the soft skills, the 21st century skills that employers are looking for are very, very strongly and very thoroughly demonstrated in their micro-credentialing mm. system and constellation. Mm. And I think it's moving away from the idea of being labelled as a badge, you know, as a means of putting more of an academic emphasis on it and, and value, I suppose, as well. Uh, that's right. And you know, collaboration is always the one I come back to. When students are doing collaboration projects, it's not necessarily something you can put a mark on as part of your academic framework, but it's a behaviour that you can recognise that a student mm. can then take. Mm. And the other valuable thing is that they're incremental. You don't have to wait until the end of the course mm. to get recognition for the good work you've done. So for the listeners, just who because people are always trying to struggle to to move my credentialing forward. Particularly, I think in Europe, it's probably the I would say maybe I'm um, maybe the wrong the first behind in this. America, there's a lot more moves in it. I know there's lots of platforms. So you know, just what was, what was the name of the the, the kind of leaders there for micro uh, RMTs? RMIT University. RMIT, okay. 
So they're, they're leading it. So please do have a look at that, and we'll, if I find some research, I'll try and uh, put some uh, in the description for this. Uh, That's right. Podcast. The the website has got um, quite a good explanation of how and why credentials are useful, mm. because you not only have to sell it to employers, you've got to sell it to the students mm. to show them what the value is. And finally, I just want to ask you about um, the role of e-portfolios mm. in, in the assessment. So we've talked about summative tools. Yeah. Are there any particular examples of, of use of e-portfolios in, in the education process in, in higher education in Australia? Uh, I've, if we look at the e-portfolio not as uh, a place to put up a finished artefact, mm. you know, like a website where you put a final product, but if you look at the e-portfolio as the scaffold to support a learning journey, then I think that most places I've seen are still struggling with the idea of how to use it mm. properly. The best place I've seen it used is at Utrecht University in the School of Veterinary Science, mm. Mm. where the e-portfolio is, is actually a place where students can demonstrate their progression and their understanding and their capabilities. Mm. Uh, in a way that is that is visible and practical uh, and useful, because the you know, it, it it works. They've been doing it for ten years using the ePass solution built by Manchester and Maastricht, and it's similar to the feedback system that Aarhus use, that the student has the opportunity to reflect on the feedback that they're given mm. and then incorporate that feedback into their next piece of work mm. to be able to demonstrate not only what they can do but how they think and how they work and how mm. they act. Mm. Mm. And I think that if you wanted to learn about how to use an e-portfolio, then that would be the place to look. Okay. That's a, so that's really some really useful insights. Is you know, this, this journey you've taken both in, mm. in Europe but also you know, reflections on what's been going on in, in Australia and other countries. I really appreciate that. Yeah, and uh, I have to say this is my view. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 that's, that's open to correction. Yeah, that's, and um, you know, we welcome listeners to feedback and yeah. collaborate and we'll you know, put this out on all the, other kind of, all the normal channels so people have the opportunity right. to, to do that. Um, if you were to, you know, let's say in the next five years, what particular piece of technology or particular activity do you think is going to make the most significant change in the, the idea of the increased use of technology in examinations? In examinations, I think it will be the incorporation of uh, highly sophisticated exam management solutions that are incorporated with learning management systems. Right. Uh, I think LMSs have not been able to display the promise that they made about being the one-stop shop. Mm. Uh, and there are products like ExamWise and Cirrus that give you very, very highly sophisticated assessment management capabilities. Mm. Mm. That's in terms of platforms. I think generally speaking, if we look at technology, we'll be looking at using um, biometrics for proctoring and invigilation. I think we'll be using machine learning for formative assessment uses and I think we'll be using machine learning to provide holistic baselines for all forms of assessment mm. so that you don't get um, you don't get marking drift, for example, if you're doing a large number of, uh, correcting a large number of assessments. So do you think, in terms of your passion around um, yeah, the pastoral side of the, the student yeah, process, do you think that's going to make it some significant gains for I th that? I think it is, because students today are digital consumers from birth. Yeah, yeah. The first thing that they recognise after their mother's face is the iPad. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the way they, they find and they experience and they consume all products is in a digital sphere. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no reason why education is going to be different from that. Yeah. Yeah. And so you will get, for example, your online shopping programs that will make next best action suggestions. Yeah. Yeah. 
um, there's some very strong thought going on about using e-commerce platforms like Salesforce yeah, yeah. to support next best action recommendations for students. Yeah. And I think that's it's going to be essential that uh, universities and schools recognise that and grasp that. Yeah. But I think it's also essential that they don't fall into the trap of thinking the big platform will solve all their problems. Yeah. For example, I've not seen in my professional career a single successful implementation of Salesforce. Right. Yeah. So I think it's it's the quality of the thought and analysis behind the decision rather than the amount of the financial commitment you make. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Excellent. Well, that's been absolutely fascinating. I'm sure our listeners will agree. Um, thank you for joining me here in this. Uh, it's nice to be surrounded by books. I don't get to the opportunity to be surrounded by books very often these days. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think books are coming back, actually. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because you can do things with a book that you can't do with a computer. Yeah, no, I agree. It's that kind of scanning approach, isn't it? The, the, the kind of leaping through. Mm. It's nice to be quite colourful here as well, isn't it? So it is quite, quite colourful. A, a jolly little place. Um, excellent. Thank you for that. Much appreciated. Um, uh, best of luck with the, your, your journey. I'm sure we'll be hearing from you in the future. Oh, uh, yes. And uh, yeah, So that, that's it from us here in Bingley Library. Thank you, Peter. And uh, good luck in your journey. When are you heading back to Melbourne? I leave Amsterdam on Sunday. Right. So it's, it's a briefish trip. But, yeah. Well, I've been away for nearly five weeks. Right, okay, right. Yeah. So that's a, a sizable, you'd be glad to be get home then, I suppose. Well, in a way. <laughs> uh, I won't be sad to leave the weather, Yeah. but there's a lot of really fascinating and interesting stuff that's being done over in Europe Excellent. and the UK that uh, really energises me. Brilliant. I'm glad you're going back with the energy then. Okay, thanks very much. Thanks, so I hope you found that as informative as I did. Uh, I thought it was a really fascinating conversation and it's great to hear uh, some wonderful things that are going on both in Europe and in Australia as well. So now, it's always good to hear about some of these other activities um, as part of the conference season in 2020. So don't forget that in April 22nd and 23rd in London, we have the e-assessment question conference, which has been organized by the e-assessment association. Uh, this is a long-standing conference that's been in place, but it's the first time that the e-assessment association has taken over the, the program at this particular conference. So we please do welcome that you uh, go along to it. Of course, if you want any more information from myself or any of the other e-assessment association board members, then uh, go to eassessment.com uh, for uh, further details and you can find out some of the work that we're doing. Thank you for being a great listener. You've come a long way. It's quite a long podcast today. Uh, but this has been a pleasure and hope to hear from you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. This has been an e-assessment association podcast. You can subscribe to these podcasts through your standard podcasting channels. And you can also find out more information on our website, which is e-assessment.com. You can join the association for free and learn about all our amazing activities in terms of research, awards, conferences, news and information. Thank you and I hope to see you back soon.